0: i'm matt peterson and this is the present past from the atlantic on this show we talk about two snapshots in time the old story and the new story and we work out where we go from here today we're going back to george soros's 1997 story the capitalist threat we covered this article on the show before but i think there is enough here to go back to it again soros's basic idea is that unfettered capitalism is a threat to democracy That idea might have been surprising in 1997, but especially since 2008, it's a big part of our politics. Still, I think I'm not the only one who finds the precise details of the financial crisis and its implications a little bewildering. That's why I am excited to talk to Adam Tooze. Adam is a history professor at Columbia. He wrote an incredible book called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. That book gave me a much clearer picture of how the financial crisis actually unfolded and the ways that it's still driving global politics today. I asked Adam to read George Soros's piece, and I will quote a chunk of it here. We are enjoying a truly global market economy in which goods, services, capital, and even people move around quite freely, but we fail to recognize the need to sustain the values and institutions of an open society. The present situation is comparable to that at the turn of the past century. It was a golden age of capitalism, characterized by the principle of laissez-faire, so is the present. The earlier period was in some ways more stable. There was an imperial power England that was prepared to dispatch gunboats to faraway places because, as the main beneficiary of the system, it had a vested interest in maintaining that system. Today, the United States does not want to be policeman of the world. How much more likely the present regime is to break down unless we learn from experience? That's George Soros. Here's Adam Toos. Hi, Adam. Oh, hi. So let's start with the cliche in that quote, right? about the United States being the policeman of the world because in some ways, Soros is wrong about this. So it's Mm -hmm. 1997 and you know, there's military interventions that follow this, but there's also a big financial intervention, right? Mm. The Fed comes in and saves the world in Mm. the financial crisis. Mm. And to be fair to Soros, maybe he updates his views in the intervening 10 years. I don't know what he actually thinks now, but does it matter that he was wrong about this idea that no one was going to rescue the global economy?
1: Yes, it, it absolutely does. I mean, the, it makes a huge difference to the narrative of 2008. It, it, was, it was widely thought, I think, that the, the crisis of the early 21st century would be a crisis of American hegemony. Um, and after all, after the debacle in Iraq, uh, it was easy to imagine that the fiasco in military and geopolitical terms would extend into a fiscal crisis which is linked because the military spending in Iraq and Afghanistan was not matched by taxes. In fact, the Republicans were also cutting taxes at the same time. So there was a very widely shared diagnosis on the part of liberals in America. In the early 2000s, most of the leading thinkers of the Democratic Party and to the left of them were convinced really that we were going to see a pretty comprehensive crisis of US hegemony at that point. And that isn't, what happened in 2008 because the nature of the crisis was rather different from what people imagined. So to that extent, I think Soros is pretty much of his time with my historian's hat on. I would say, though he's wrong, I'm not surprised by his misjudgment. Um, It was, it was widely, it was widely shared. Um, What, happened really took everyone by surprise. Um, yeah. Can you just briefly remind folks what, what actually did happen? Well, the, the, the crucial thing is that the crisis of 2008 was not the crisis that people expected. What people expected was a fiscal crisis of the US. So America was borrowing too much money and famously it was borrowing it from the Chinese who were thought to be the great geopolitical antagonist of the future. And so there was a scenario there in which the Chinese would mount a bear aid on America, they would sell off their treasuries, the price of treasuries would plunge, the interest rate the treasury would have to offer would surge. The Russians actually, apparently, though this is an apocryphal story never fully confirmed, actually wanted to enact this scenario in 2008 in the context of the crisis over NATO expansion, Georgia, and so on. Um, And so that was the crisis that people anticipated, and that's not what happened at all. The Chinese actually increased their holding of US government debt overall during the crisis because it was a safe asset to run to when... What was failing was the private sector credit system, which is the story of 2007-08. Not a crisis of American government debt or, frankly, anyone else's government debt until the eurozone thing really gets out of control. It's a crisis of banking, of private relationships, of private contracts, of private debt, where the Fed has to step in as a lender of last resort for the US, first of all, but then for the entire global banking system because the entire global banking system does its business in dollars and was deeply implicated in the American subprime crisis.
0: So you have folks like Soros and others expecting American weakness and what comes along in 2008 is in fact the United States steps in, the Fed specifically steps Mm -hmm. in and as you've written extends these swap lines to Mm. all these other governments and basically just Mm. bails out
1: the world's banks, right? Well, bailout is strong. We have to be careful here because bailing out, when we say bailing out, we generally mean taking a capital stake and putting money on the line in the form of equity. Uh, those are the really highly contentious bailouts that we see, say, of AIG, for instance, or in Europe, you know, Lloyd's TSB, uh, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, the, the big European bailouts in that respect are different. What we're talking about here is liquidity provision, which is rescuing, and without it, the banking system would have failed. But th- that legal difference is crucial because one is hugely controversial and politicized, and the liquidity support can take place behind the scenes with no one noticing, basically.
0: Yeah. So instead of this this weak American state that the liberals of the mid-90s were expecting, we have, or at least what seemed like for a while, a very powerful American state.
1: Well, we have to differentiate, right? So yeah. the state's a big amorphous blob. Um, you know, the, the integrity of states, their sovereignty is one of the fictions that sustains them. Critical theory will tell us really from the 60s and 70s onwards. So what we can say is that the Federal Reserve was able to act the Treasury was able to place debt in markets. All of that worked. Um, the American political system is coming apart at the seams. Uh, already was clearly from the 1990s onwards with the radicalization of the Republican Party and its you know no-holds-barred assault on the Clinton presidency. The 2006 elections deal a humiliating blow to the Republicans and in 2008, in the middle of the most existential crisis the American economy and American society has faced since the Great Depression. The Bush administration, a Republican administration, cannot get the votes of its own congressional caucus to push through legislation which is essential to save middle-class America middle class in the strong sense in other words homeowning America not working-class America but middle-class America the solid uh, middle of American society supporting both the Democrats and the Republicans depending on the, on the constituency and and much as the Republicans may hate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and they may regard them quite rightly as gigantic you know Democratic party machines but nevertheless this is not the moment to play politics with the fundamental infrastructure of American society society. And the Bush administration is pleading with the Republicans in, c- in Congress to deliver the votes and they refuse. TARP fails the first time round at the end of September. Um, so this to my mind is the moment where you see the Republican Party moving from being a party of government to really you know, sort of a motive expressive party of protest, willing to consider the possibility of a total catastrophe as a way to what they imagine would be a better America. So on that side of things, continued disintegration, and then if you look to the geopolitics, of course, the endless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq grind on, Obama actually raises the stakes there, pushed by the military, the confrontation with China gets more serious, NSA unravels. So the state, (laughs) you know, if you think about about the state as that whole complex, then that wouldn't be the summary judgment one would make. What we're seeing rather more is, as it were, this sort of emergency ad hoc measures in the one sector where really is agency. I, I ended up saying for a while uh, that you know that, that the two bits of the American state that do continue to work are the special forces in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> so it's not big army, but if you, you know you can assassinate uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, and do drone strikes, um, and you can do Federal Reserve policy. And then in 2013, we discover the NSA scandal as this gigantic network where you can see American power highly operative around the world. But then in, in other respects, of course, the the decay, the crumbling, the disintegration is all too real.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think then that this diagnosis that Soros gives, that, that sort of market fundamentalism, it, as he calls it, laissez-faire in this story, is that what's actually hollowing out the other parts of the American state? I mean, how, how much of that diagnosis
1: actually still makes sense in hindsight? I do think… Political conservatism and not just in the United States has a big problem with this is fundamentally, let's put it clearly, a conservative diagnosis, widely right. shared by conservatives in both Europe and America, that they love markets, but they don't believe that markets by themselves can replicate the preconditions of their own stability and their own existence. In other words, you need some other fundaments, some institutions, some legacies of tradition, some conservative values. Otherwise, you'll frankly end up in a kind of libertarian, liberal, free-for-all mess, which conservatives abhor even more in some ways than leftists abhor it. So um, I do think that there is an element of truth in this diagnosis, which is that conservatism in its commitment to free markets, and the particular in American brand of conservatism is particularly unstable in this respect, does tend to subvert some of the foundations of its own you know, possibilities and conditions of existence. So, you know, you move towards a free market society and all voluntary military, and yet you want to somehow maintain a comprehensive nationalism and, a you know, the capacity for external action. Now, at one level, that may work in a very cynical bargain by which you have a privatized army doing, you know, wars of choice. Um, but then the question, of course, is can you build political legitimacy for that? And is that kind of great power politics sustainable? If it was as cheap as gunboats, which saw us <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so uh, so cheer- cheerily invokes, you know, just a little matter of sending a gunboat to wherever, Venezuela or Egypt or oh, somewhere, yes, then, well. you know, then, yeah. then, you know, then, then you um, know, then, then, then... This might even be a viable policy, but we know that that's not what the wars of choice of the early 2000s were.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to something you mentioned about the idea of catastrophe becoming thinkable, because that is playing a big, big part in our politics. So we're talking, you know, the end of February here, the Brexit deadline is coming up yeah. soon. You've also had, you know, all of the uh, American budget exercises that have played with catastrophe, um, that various um, debt limit crises is yeah. what I'm thinking. But the w- – <laughs> what does it take to actually convince people that catastrophe is not a good idea? I mean, uh, you know, I think so many people came through the financial crisis and thought, God, let's never do that again. But there's this important strain of conservative thinking that thinks, no, we just didn't go far enough. Like, yep. what, what explains this dynamic?
1: And leftist thinking. I mean, if you right. think about left-wing right. lexiteers in Britain, I mean, they're quite convinced that that taking Britain out, even in a catastrophic circumstances, might provide them for the you know with the conditions to actually build socialism in Britain. There's a strand like that in Syriza, in Greece, in the summer of 2015 as well. Um, but it is remarkable to find it within conservatism now as well, and uh, clearly Brexit is one instance of this. And um, in the US, we've seen it repeatedly. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the budget crisis of 2011 and 2013. I mean, there are descriptions of Repu- Republican Party bigwigs, you know, convening yeah. seminars with the Freedom Caucus people to explain to them that yes, a default truly would be <laughs> catastrophic. Uh, it's thought that Powell, you know, Chairman Feld yeah. of the Fed, owes his Owes his position to the fact that he was so helpful to the Obama administration working the Republican side because he was across, you know, he was a bipartisan appointment by the Obama administration to the Fed board. And that was in part because he was seen as a responsible linchpin Republican player, a bit like Bernanke, who was Mm -hmm. also a Republican after all, um, who could bridge this gap. And so, yes, they're actually having to do work to convince (laughs) them that this is. This is not. Um, I think it comes out of the sense out of two different types of problem, right? On the, in the British case, I think it's, it really is this clash between a value system on the one hand and the pragmatic requirements of ver- modernity on the other, which is not really resolvable. And so you end up in this absurd impasse where you vote your way around a series of options, none of which have a majority. And the clock keeps on ticking. Um, In the American case, I think there truly is a sense amongst some of the conservatives uh, that the current situation is so bad, uh, they really genuinely have, uh, you know, this – American carnage kind of interpretation of uh, one of the chapters of my book is called American Gothic, right? There's this sense that not just on the left uh, and not just amongst embattled minority communities whose circumstances of life may in large parts of America truly be apocalyptic, right? But there are, there is um, there is a sense on the part of uh, of a minority of conservatives that, you know, the American dream is so broken uh, America is so damaged beyond repair really that, that one needs to Smash it to remake it. I mean Bannon famously said, you know, I mean it's a kind of anarchist interpretation of Leninism, which frankly was quite common in twenty seven you know, nineteen seventeen, like smash the state, break it, because without breaking it you can't make any progress.
0: Yeah. and yet they're being restrained some of this politics is being enabled by people like Powell in a sense, right? Because I mean Powell's very interesting Character in this story because he's appointed by the Trump administration, which also you know brought in Bannon, which wanted who wanted to smash yeah. the state, right? Yeah. I mean, and this is a bit the story of the 2008 crisis is sort of the technocrats seize control yeah. to the detriment of our politics, right? And we're still sort of trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that you have the Federal Reserve, which is not particularly you know accountable to day to day politics, mm-hmm. um, at least um, you know playing such a huge important role in our economy. Why do they keep bringing these people back if they want
1: to smash the state? Well, it's different actors, isn't it? Again, yeah. we have to talk about these weird loose combinations. I mean, everyone's been playing sort of criminology on the on the White House ever since Trump was a, you know, sure. took office. It's obviously a gang of like warring factions with very different agendas, some of which really do tend in this radical direction but you know included absolutely mainstream conservative business figures who had no interest whatsoever in seeing nafta suddenly cancelled or you know any kind of radical action of that type um, so i think that's key to understanding this is that these are heterogeneous coalitions of of actors with different agendas at any one time i think the role of the fed and the role of the technocratic takeover in enabling this is very interesting there's a kind of t- vicious circle here in which because the pre- the crisis was as pressing as it was, and because the political coalitions backing action were as fragile as they were and because some of the stuff that had to be done was so distasteful and so clearly in the interests of a small oligarchic minority that it was convenient for everyone, for the Fed and certain treasury officials to do this, to do it quickly and to sweep it under the carpet as quickly as they could. I mean they completely repurposed, top, repurposed top. You know, It wasn't supposed to be used for recapitalizing America's leading banks. That wasn't the plan at all it was supposed to be for buying bad assets and to provide help to homeowners. So they just... they. They totally morphed and changed legislation within days of it having been passed. That is quite effective as a mechanism for dealing with the crisis, certainly, say, if you compare it with Europe. Right. But the downside of that is that, in a sense, you let the politicians then off the hook. And I think there's a real sense in which the efficacy of the, the Fed in ensuring that there isn't really going to be a disastrous crisis in the American bond market and that there is an ticking engine of recovery going on in Europe since 2009 has, in a sense, enabled Congress to behave less responsibly. Um, and I'm not saying that there's a sort of deliberate intention, but there is a sort of nasty uh, entanglement here uh, in which one is the result of the other i mean in the in the absence of acute bond market pressure you can do foolish things you know on the budget and get away with it there are of course also global demand pressures meaning that investors will buy us treasuries even if congress behaves irresponsibly but the fed is managing and overseeing that system and so there is a yeah there's a really unfortunate way in which the efficacy of technocratic action allows politics to be uh, less responsible
0: one of the interesting things I took from your book was that it's not just that the technocrats are in charge, but it's these specific activist-oriented technocrats. And that's one of the big questions about what would happen if we hit a 2008 style crisis again with this the current set of mm-hmm. actors involved. Mm-hmm. You, you, It wasn't just that the Fed stepped in. It was Ben Bernanke as mm-hmm. the chairman who decided that I was going to take this action in coordination with Timothy Geithner and, and lots mm-hmm. of other folks, Right. Are those people still in charge anymore? I mean, what like, what is the role of sort of the political agency of the of these technocrats? In? Yes,
1: I think that's important to emphasize. Again, you're in, you only have to compare the U.S. with Europe to see the difference. Technocrats can make, and they come in all different shapes and sizes and shades, and they have politics basically. Um, and you're absolutely right. The Ben Bernanke-Geithner team had a kind of historic sense of mission, I think. But Bernanke in particular, because he's on record as an economic historian, and it's it's quite clear if you are a historian of the Great Depression of a monetarist inclination, you know at least one mistake you aren't going to repeat. You may not be able to avoid new mistakes, but there is one old mistake you aren't going to repeat, and that is you are not going to allow the money supply to con- collapse as a result of mass banking failure, which is what happened to America between 29 and 33. And Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, in their classic history of the of, uh, of America's money and banking, explained this, outlined it to the you know to the satisfaction of everyone of Ben Bernanke's generation. And he famously, at their birthday, of Milton Friedman's birthday celebration, said, you know. Anna and Milton, you were right. We were wrong and we won't do it again. Thanks to you. So (laughs) at that level, there really is a a sense of mission. This is also a generation sort of inspired in some ways by America's military activism and looking to extend that kind of activism analogically into the economic sphere. But it's also worth saying that ahead of time, we might not have known that folks like Bernanke would turn out to be the kind of actors that they turned out to be, so it's you know this is it would be a kind of a fool's game I think right now to be calling the you know how we would expect Powell to respond and so on yeah. i mean. Trump, for, for better or worse, I mean, one of the actors who was around during the crisis and was quite forthright about his views, and that's President Trump, um, who during the 2008 crisis was banging the drum for activism, hailed Obama as the new president who would overcome the debility of the late Bush presidency. Yeah, he said uh, Trump was the right thing
0: to do, absolutely, right? Absolutely.
1: He would go on go on Republican talk shows uh, unabashedly and, and say this because, you know, but fun. He's basically a cynical, completely unprincipled businessman who just wants to make sure that business can go on. So he's pragmatic. No ideologue, uh, as we've seen over interest rate policy. So I don't think there's any reason to think there's been any fundamental shift. There is some legislation that makes it a little bit harder. Dodd-Frank. Uh, but I think most people think that if Bush came to shove, they'd find a way around it. Um, but Dodd-Frank is not helpful. And, and Geithner and Paulson and Bernanke were on a bit of a campaign uh, last fall uh, for the anniversary, arguing that you know, Dodd-Frank had, had restricted their discretionary scope for action in ways which would be potentially rather dangerous in a new crisis. Again compare and contrast with Europe and you see you know, how big a difference it can make even within Europe the transition from the Trichet era to the Draghi era, era made a huge difference at the ECB right. Draghi being more American in his background more MIT macro of the 1970s and 80s which is where many of these people came out of mm.
0: And, and he came in and said, "Whatever it takes, right?"
1: Yeah, which is which is American kind of talk. Yeah, uh, he said it in English. He said it in <laughs> London. He said it to you know Anglophone hedge fund managers, saying, "You you know you've got to understand this is for real now. Stop playing with us."
0: All right. All right. Let's go back to the Soros story. So there one of the lines that I thought was interesting is the way that Soros thinks about international institutions and where they come from and where sort of world order comes from. So he says, guided by the principle of the survival of the fittest, states are increasingly preoccupied with their competitiveness and unwilling to make any sacrifices for the common good. And that struck me as a very 90s view. And I'm curious if you feel the same way about this, that the idea that The institutions that we have, like NATO, like the Bretton Woods institutions, like the IMF, or maybe even the WTO, though it came later, these are creations of a kind of self-sacrificing nature that Mm -hmm. were intended, you know, to sort of glue the world together, but they weren't really for American good. Does that
1: feel off to you reading that now? Well, I think in fairness to Soros, right, it's, it, Soros is a very complicated thinker, actually. So I think the point he's making, first of all, is that this is an instance of his reflexivity theory. So yeah. the theories that states have about the world affect how the world works. And what he's saying in that passage is that the social Darwinism, which has inflected international relations thinking, which he thinks of as being an even worse kind of science than economics, um, is making a world. Of that type. Whereas, in fact, he thinks if you had a good modern evolutionary theory, you'd be able to understand how cooperation works, how therefore various types of win-win behaviour emerge. Um, and that presumably would be a much better model also of how something we might call international society or inter- international community, the so-called English School of International Relations, would think about the development of those institutions. In other words, they are in- self-interested. Um, But that self-interest is a complex self-interest based on and includes strategies and tactics, if you like. That include cooperative moves, gambits, gestures, short-term investments, as opposed to sacrifices. You know, you can easily escape the helpless, I think, language of altruism and self-sacrifice by way of that kind of model, and that's what I take Soros to be saying. Um, In other words, the problem right now is that there's too much of that social Darwinism in the system. And to that extent, you could say he was prescient. In other words. We are living now, 20 years later, in a world in which a sort of native social Darwinism, the new belief on the part of Washington that the world should be dominated by great power conflict, right, is in some sense bootstrapping itself into existence because it's not obvious that all the players want to play that game. Hmm. You know, and it's not well, a matter. China, China loves win-win uh, strategies, right? <laughs> That's what they like to say. Yes, of course they do. Yeah. Uh, as does everyone else. You yeah. go to a place like Davos. The only people who aren't saying that are the occasional <laughs> Trump administration people. Right? Yeah, because because it's it's a particularly weird opening move in a self. I- everyone, if we all understand <laughs> that we're involved in a self interested, it's like entering some ghastly Tinder date where you say, "All I want to <laughs> do is have sex, and I want to have it this way." you up for it like yeah. you know to it, it might not be the best way to get into bed
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean I, I feel like that's the success of grinder right well, there for yeah it's maybe it's different cultures but, yeah, yeah precisely yeah <laughs> <laughs> so okay so so then this 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 idea then that that so he's actually prescient you said right that he's foreseeing some of the kind of destructive competition that we're seeing seeing right now i mean I I guess like where I was coming at this story was, you know, he, he is a guy who does believe that there ought to be sort of globe spanning institutions. And, Mm. and, and we're at a moment where these institutions sort of mean less and less and, or they're being changed or challenged by, Mm. you know, countries like China that are creating their own institutions. And I'm curious if you think that that ethos explains some of what is happening right now, that, that, um, a, a lack of, that our you know, government's view of institutions like, let's just take the IMF mm. um, that it ought to purely be serving American interests. is does that explain any of you know what we're seeing right now in terms of the friction in international politics?
1: I do think America's still a bit of an outlier in the sense that I don't think there is not any. Maybe the Germans could be persuaded to actually publicly declare that they forswear any national interest. in fact, mm-hmm. the german a German president had to resign for having said that um Germany's troops were in Afghanistan to defend German national interests. That that violated the German constitution. But no one else in their right mind is ever going to say that. On the other hand, you will find a solid majority of large, sophisticated states who all believe that there have to be global institutions for key areas of governance and that going forward, the pressure to have those is likely to intensify. And frankly, the timeline on which this is going to happen is rather short. And if it doesn't, then the results are catastrophic. So, and the two areas where this is true is financial governance, evidently, um, and climate and and unless uh, structures of international governments emerge on those two axes, then the results are likely to be catastrophic. Um, and G20 institutions are in some sense a move towards that. I mean that, that the Trump administration has espoused this particularly banal, particularly crude version of national interest and that that then licenses imitators say in places like Brazil or in Poland – You know, one shouldn't overestimate that. Of course it has catastrophic results, but it isn't going to persuade sophisticated players like the EU or Japan or Australia or China that all of a sudden their previous diagnosis was completely incorrect. We now, however, face a world in which there are several actors who are completely uncooperative. And now none of those other people, none of those other actors will ever really deny that it's in their self-interest to have these things done. They just think that those problems are essentially global in scope, and that's the appropriate level at which they need to be addressed. And behind the scenes, there is still quite a lot of American involvement, say in the IMF for instance, right. on the crisis like the Argentine crisis, the Americans were actually fairly cooperative. So, you know, th- they have particular bugbears, the WTO is one of them, um, but, um, and the Paris you know, accords on climate change are, are another. Um, but but like I say, I don't. I don't think that the that that uh, America should be seen as it, it constitutes a force pushing back against those kind of institutions, uh, and it constitutes something like a mini trend amongst a variety of of other players. But that's no more, no less than that. Yeah. So you mentioned climate change a couple of
0: times there, and I've, mm. I've been thinking a little bit about this. This kind of conflict between the technocrats and the politicians who have to make actual policy choices mm-hmm. seems to be manifesting in the debate about climate change, right? I mean, you're you're having this argument about the Green New Deal now and the question is, you know, um, the fight on the left is whether or not you have to say you have to pay for it or not. Do you see a connection between those kinds of the, the, like, the vanishing, <laughs> the technocrats takeover of our economic policy making and this political argument that we're having now about how you ought to deal with climate change.
1: I mean, it is a subject which could easily you know really drive you onto a very painful cleft stick in the sense that you know it's the ultimate technocrats politics in some sense it's very diffuse as a reality it will affect you in various ways but you know it takes science very complicated science to really spell out the interconnections and the future horizons which are the ones which are so devastating and even when that devastating reality is upon us it'll be very difficult to actually were uh, immediately point from one cause to another effect it's like trying to identify chemical poison in you know court cases, it's very difficult to actually establish that causation. Even if everyone of right mind is convinced that the link is is there and that the connections are efficacious, so that's the kind of area where this gap between public politics. Between popular politics and technocracy could emerge and become incredibly painful. But there are counter examples. I mean, if you think about the German decision to back out of coal, uh, which was taken a couple of weeks ago, it's by no means a satisfactory outcome, in my view. But it's nevertheless a model of how you can make that kind of decision making rather different. Right? It's a big multi-stakeholder committee involving the representation of labour, of all of the states which have, you know, power stations, and then you you figure out some multi it's really like multi-decade compensation deal so as to figure out that you know people losing their jobs in coal fired power stations and in coal mines get compensated for the collective decision to move away from coal it's not in any way an optimal decision right it's not quick enough and in any case you're taking some of europe's least dirty coal plants offline whilst leaving the polish ones in operation but if you're asking does, you know, urgent, large-scale climate politics necessarily lead to a split between technocracy and regular political decision-making? No, it doesn't have to. But you do have to have a political class and a political system capable of that level of sophistication and given, you know, America's situation right now, who would want to bet money on that here? Uh, but in, in in that case, it worked. The the de- the, the, the counter example would be the Giais Jaune in France where you have, you know, Macron's highly uh, inequitable uh, tax policy culminating in a large increase in the price of fuel for regular folks who have to drive long distances and France is a big country by European standards so they're very dependent on cars and then you have this mass outbreak of violent protest um, over essentially a top-down market-based green policy. I mean, that's a disaster when that kind of thing happens. That should never have been allowed to emerge as a conflict. We do. There's no reason why Collective interest, popular politics ought to not be able to embrace the environmental issue, um, but it really is a matter of political rhetoric, you know, what we used to call banali political leadership as to how big that gap becomes.
0: Yeah. Should should American progressives admire Germany and their political system in any way? I mean, you know, you're talking about outcomes in in that country where, you know, I think, people on the left here would actually like some of these things and yet you know germany was responsible for this terrible austerity politics yeah exactly the yeah, yeah no
1: so no i mean i think anyone who likes democracy should admire and i don't think this is a left right thing anyone yeah. who is in, interested in the rule of law political procedure the sophistication of the political discourse uh, the capacity of the political system to actually represent the diversity you know five or six different factions within german society all now represented with serious voices in the german German Parliament. Um, At that level, formally, if you like, anyone who's interested in well-functioning modern democracies ought to at least look to Germany as one example of how it can be made to work. I'm not by any means saying it's the only one. But no, does that mean that you have to approve all of the outputs that come out of this? Evidently not. You know, you can think. Angela Merkel is both charming, highly intelligent and in some ways a sophisticated exponent of, you know, the ideal of democratic leadership and nevertheless abhor her fiscal politics, you know. So um I think it's a sign of our desperation if you have to like, you know, take Germany lock stock and barrel as your as your as your gold <laughs> standard. Of course not. No, it's been governed essentially non-stop by conservatives uh, who wouldn't feel, you know, many of whom would be perfectly at home as Christian conservatives, mainstream mainstream Republicans, really.
0: Yeah. Well, let me extend the line of questioning because I'm curious if there is, if not another country, if a, a, a historical period in American history when um, people ought to look back to as a model for how we ought to do things. And I'll say, for instance, you know, I had Tim Wu here talking about antitrust recently and mm. he was talking about, you know, Louis Brandeis, and the move
1: back to yeah. that, that period. You yeah. know, is is there a similar model? I'm, you know, what I'm really skeptical about this. Uh, in part, because I'm not an American, uh, yeah. and so I'm not steeped in the American political narrative. But that makes me a little bit European in the sense that there aren't that many Europeans who are, you know, in th- have their favorite Supreme Court justice, or you know, really deeply enthusiastic about FDR or uh, even the civil rights movement. There aren't that many moments in modern European history that anyone really celebrates. Right. And the upside of that, and it's a huge upside of that, is that you're not confined in a parochial national story, which becomes the standard reference point for all of your politics. And much as I admire, I mean, and I've written about like, the Wilsonian era, and much as I admire the New Deal, at least the left liberal version of the New Deal, And, you know, the dynamism of American uh, civil rights politics in the 1960s, I mean, A, where it's all left America right now is hardly a cause for celebration. And we have to understand this as path dependent. In other words, what is it? I mean, all of those movements presumably have narratives that end in failure. So, because look at where we're at. And secondly, all of them blind us to the absolutely fundamental world historic shift in the balance between the West and Asia. And The thing that really troubles me about the New Deal references, the Marshall Plan references, is that at the end of the day, the reason why Americans had nothing to fear but fear itself was A, if they fixed themselves, they could get themselves back on top and American society would particularly on fine and B, if they did fix themselves, they would be the central actor of world politics. In other words, they will be able to profoundly shape both their own society and the world around them. And in key areas of world affairs right now, that is a delusion and it should not be promised to the American electorate. The Green New Deal is a great thing and I wholeheartedly support it. But if you think it actually fixes the climate change problem, you're kidding yourself. And that we have to develop a progressive politics which inhabits the space of essentially dependence, right, of being in a non-sovereign position. Because with regard to climate change, the West is a bystander. Now, we can be a helpful bystander. We can contribute our part. We can open up our technology to people who need it more urgently than we do. But the decision, the fate of humanity is not going to be defined by us. It's going to be defined by the, you know, electricity and power generating decisions made by China and India in the next 20 years and for me therefore those historical references are misleading because they they take us back to a period in which in a sense if all we could do was just get a grip on our own society then all would be well right then we would reassert we would regain the promise of democratic sovereignty we would regain the promise of agency indeed ultimately of something like emancipation and that's not on the agenda now if climate change is as serious as most people think it is that's just not on the agenda anymore and much as I understand the logic of the New Deal references as an energizing political mes- message, what I fear is that they suggest the outcome will be D-Day or you know triumph in World War Two or the United Nations or something like that, and that's not that's not the act that America is anymore.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good way to frame this this. What's going on in our politics, and I, you know, I followed the trade disputes that the United States is having fairly closely, and and that's is what ex, what you're describing is exactly what our trade officials are trying to do, which is they're trying to seize the moment of continuing American leverage yeah. over the global economy, yeah, you know, to do something before it's yeah. too late.
1: So we have like four levels here, like with regard to military c- command, America still commands more power than any power has ever commanded in the world. With regard to the financial system, as we were saying earlier, the dollar is crucial, and the Fed is at absolutely vital. With regard to markets, apart from anything else, because America imports so much stuff from so many people, it has leverage. But on CO2 output, I mean, America's outcome, you know, share of global CO2 output is 15%. Twice, China's is already twice that. Yeah. If you add in the other emerging markets, it's multiples more, right? The EU and America together probably put out less than China, and they're on a declining trend, right? So, Just from the the point of view of the simple arithmetic of this problem, we're well past the point at which we have any leverage at all. You know, insofar as America has leverage on the green issue, it is as a cooperative partner in global deals which are asking other players to make much larger sacrifices than we are making ourselves. And there's no doubt that in the climate of the Paris climate talks, for America to be a proactive green New Dealing player would be transformative In the atmosphere of those talks. But what needs to happen, of course, is that in Delhi and Beijing, and then all the way down the line, because these are massive federal states, decisions are made and and political coalitions are formed, which allow them to rapidly transition. And we've just seen how difficult it is for a society as sophisticated as Germany to make the decision to turn off the coal power stations. We're asking India and China, each one of whose major regions is the size of Germany, to make that decision over and over again and in each case decide for an extremely expensive strategy of very rapid transition away from coal. So. That is the that is the sense in which our leverage is extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily limited I think and we, what we need to be thinking about with a Green New Deal is not just what we can do at home but what limited means of influence, what limited means of support and assistance that we can provide to those actors in this drama because it's there really that the work has to be done. Right,
0: it's it's the historical analogy as much that you're objecting to here as the actual policy, right?
1: Well, you know, the Green New Deal, I wholly support. What worries me about it is that it suggests, you know, the image of a sovereignty restored, of an agency restored, of a, of a you know an enthusiastically mobilized American nation in the end, not just saving itself but saving the world, yeah. um, and and. Of course, for America to move into the position of being a green new deal actor would transform the Paris conference type politics of climate change. But in the end, it's China and India that have to make the decisions. Well, let me wrap this up by going back
0: one last time to the Soros piece and you know, I don't know where you were in 1997, but I'm curious, you know, if you had read this at the time, the financial crisis is long in the future hasn't no we don't have no sign that it's coming yet. Would you have been alarmed to read this? Would it have been surprising to you to read this story twenty years ago, or would you would you have thought, man, no big deal?
1: Well, no, I mean, I I grew up on like you know um, neo Marxist state crisis theory from the nineteen seventies <laughs> and the nineteen eighties. I mean, if you if you're reading the the New Left Review and Marxism Today in Britain in the nineteen eighties, then you know the diagnosis that democracy and capitalism might not make exactly ideal bedfellows was not news, um, you know. Uh, and the intellectual sources that Popper, oh, sorry, that uh, that the intellectual sources mm-hmm. that he was drawing on were, you know, were clearly marked by their position in the Cold War. I mean, Popper is his great hero. Yeah. Like there's no, it, it's, it's striking historically that a figure like this should, um, you know, a figure like this should uh, be making this kind of statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, But it's not, no, it's in no no way surprising. I mean, anyone from the critical disposition should always have wondered how democracy and capitalism go together, I think.
0: Yeah. Adam Tooze is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University and Director of the European Institute. The old story we're talking about is George Soros' The Capitalist Threat from 1997. You can read it on theatlantic.com. Thank you, Adam.
1: Thank you.